Welcome to Hub Headlines. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in The Hub for February 27th. Up first is Steve LaFleur writing on Sweden's rent control disaster, how this is relevant to Canada and what we can learn about rent control. Canadian renters are really feeling the pinch right now. Even cities like Calgary and Halifax that were relatively affordable a few short years ago have seen rents skyrocket over the past few years. Naturally, this has brought renewed interest in rent control. Unfortunately, rent control isn't a panacea. In fact, if taken too far, it can be disastrous. Consider Sweden. Stockholm has some of the most rigid rent controls on earth. The system is so complicated that I had to reach out to a Swedish friend for an explanation. He is a Swedish friend who, I might add, I met because of rent control. Let's call him Thomas. I met Thomas as an intern in Washington, D.C., in 2009. We were both in the same program but placed at different organizations. We were two of the only non-Americans in the program, and I'm half Nordic, so we have some things in common. What I remember about him, above all, is his reason for being there he couldn't get an apartment in Stockholm. You see, Stockholm doesn't have the kind of mushy rent controls that allow for a small annual increase and for landlords to rent out vacant units at market rate. No, sir. Stockholm has the real deal rent control that hardcore social democrats dream of. While long-term residents enjoy low rents, young Swedes often wait more than a decade for an apartment. Longer still in the most desirable parts of the country, like Stockholm. Thomas was on the wait list for an apartment in central Stockholm. He figured there was no point hanging around Sweden if he couldn't live where the action was. So he saw an opportunity to get some American work experience and took it. This memory was in the back of my mind for years. Every time I'd hear a story about decades-long wait lists for apartments in Stockholm, I'd think of him. Then, one day in 2017, I realized he'd turned up in Vancouver. He was working there, my new head office was there, so we met up. I kept thinking, is he still on the wait list? He traveled across the world to work in Washington, not exactly a cheap city, and now he lived in legendarily unaffordable Vancouver. Sure enough, he was still waiting. Fast forward to 2020. COVID times. Everyone's shuffling about, figuring out what on earth they're going to do in this brave new world. Some of us moved out of the city for some breathing room. Others moved into big cities because it was cheap, maybe just me. Thomas moved back to Sweden. His timing was impeccable. Thomas managed to get an apartment after being waitlisted for 13 to 14 years. Normally it takes much longer, upwards of 40 years for the most desirable units. He's paying about $1,350 Canadian for a two-bedroom apartment around the price of a one-bedroom apartment in Winnipeg or a two-bedroom apartment in Saskatoon. Very cheap by Toronto and Vancouver standards, though not completely out of line with Canada's more balanced real estate markets. What can we learn from Thomas' experience? Is rent control an abject failure? It's complicated. Perhaps the most famous quote about rent control is from another Swede, Asar Lindbeck. In many cases, rent control appears to be the most efficient technique presently known to destroy a city, except for bombing. There's an important caveat in that otherwise bombastic statement in many cases. 
The program design and market context are crucial. As I said, Sweden's rent control laws are rigid, with increases being determined by collective bargaining. By contrast, Ontario's rent control laws which apply to units built before 2018 are more flexible and don't cap the asking price of new leases. Not all rent control regimes are alike. Furthermore, the impact will vary by housing market. Sweden has a relatively modest population growth rate. Their population increased by approximately 18.4% between 2000 and 2022. By contrast, Canada's population expanded by 30.7% during that period and shows no sign of slowing. Our population increased by 1.1% in the third quarter of 2023 alone. Rent control is likely to create much bigger unintended consequences in markets that need to accommodate rapid population inflows. It doesn't take much to disincentivize construction. Modestly high interest rates are doing that right now. Choking off future returns to real estate investment would have a much bigger impact. So where does that leave us? I think the starting point is to realize that rent control isn't a shortcut to affordability. It can certainly help existing tenants. I personally benefit from rent control. Similar units to my own have been listed in my building at $500 more than I'm paying. But if we capped all rental increases at 3%, it's hard to imagine that we'd get all the housing we need built. I think Strong Town's Daniel Harridge's has a useful way to frame the issue. Rent control is useful as an anti-displacement measure, but not as an affordability issue. Relatively flexible rent controls can balance the needs of existing tenants with the need for growth. Getting the details right is crucial. After all, if you don't get enough housing construction, you end up in a housing shortage. We're already there in Canada. Even though rent control was removed for new units in Ontario, a thicket of regulations, taxes and labor shortages makes it tough for us to ramp up housing construction. So we need to be extremely careful about dissuading real estate investment. Frankly, the best way to balance the needs of tenants and developers is to have a rational housing market that allows for the supply of housing to keep up with the demand for housing. Fast-growing cities like Dallas, Houston, and even Edmonton have managed to keep rents in check by encouraging development. Of course, Toronto and Vancouver aren't and shouldn't sprawl out like Houston. But there's plenty of room to build upwards within the geographic boundaries of Vancouver and Toronto if we allow it. Tokyo has proven that it's possible to build upwards to affordability. We can do it too. The cost of housing isn't increasing well beyond the rate of inflation because of some law of nature. It's because of scarcity. If we can bring down the cost of providing new units and increase the rate of production, we can build our way out of the problem. In that kind of market environment, relatively flexible rent controls can be effective anti-displacement tools without unintentionally undermining affordability, let alone creating housing shortages. The goal shouldn't be to slow the growth of $2,500 plus rents. The goal should be to bring down the cost of rent in Canada's least affordable cities. If we can structurally decrease the cost of providing housing in Canada, maintaining rent controls as anti-displacement measures becomes a lot easier. That's the future we should strive for. With rents where they are, it's understandable that people are grasping for easy answers. But while rent control may have its place as an anti-displacement measure, it's no panacea for affordability. If you don't believe me, ask a Swede.
That was a commentary by Steve Lafleur. He is a public policy analyst and columnist based in Toronto. You can find the full text of his article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Evan Menzies, who is a senior campaign strategist with Crestview Strategy. He is writing today on the state of the NDP in Alberta, the difference between the federal and provincial NDP, and how Alberta shows the NDP to be a fractured party. The kickoff of the Alberta NDP leadership race has made one thing clear 2017's uniting of Alberta's conservative parties has produced not only an electoral juggernaut, but it has dragged Alberta's NDP into a full policy and party repositioning a move that threatens to make it almost unrecognizable to the party Rachel Notley took over in 2014. Ever since Jason Kenney won the leadership of the United Conservative Party in 2017, the Alberta NDP has been on its heels defending its record in government. And just as consequentially, it has had to defend its ties to the federal NDP and its unpopular in the prairie's leader, Jagmeet Singh. In her time as leader, Notley resisted giving an inch on her policy record, attempting to delicately carve out differences in policy with her federal cousins. Party operatives faithfully stayed on script and cast off accusations that they were taking their marching orders from Singh, arguing such claims were insider nonsense removed from the day-to-day -day concerns of Albertan voters. But with Albertan voters telling the NDP to stay put in opposition until at least 2027, it's clear the party now sees the current dynamic as a major impediment to making serious gains to win back government. The proof is baked into how the leadership contestants have all kicked off their campaigns. Former Deputy Premier Sarah Hoffman called the consumer carbon price one she herself helped to advance and defend in government debt. Up-and-comer Rocky Pancholi echoed the same sentiment in her campaign launch and in interviews since. Calgary-based MLA Kathleen Ganley, channeling her very best impression of Danielle Smith during her time at the Fraser Institute, has called for raising the personal tax exemption by another $5,000 to $26,000, a move that would mean 2.5 million Albertans would pocket tax savings of $400 a year and remove 150,000 Albertans on the lower end of the tax bracket from paying any income tax at all. Those who closely watched the 2023 provincial election will recall this campaign pledge from Ganley is not too far removed in spirit from the UCP commitment to create a new 8% tax bracket on income earned under $60,000. Campaigning on tax increases was once considered electoral poison in the province that is, until the NDP victory in 2015. It was that assumption underlying the unearned confidence of Alberta's former progressive conservatives in 2015 who simply couldn't imagine voters giving Alberta's balance sheet to a party campaigning on income tax hikes. But with NDP MLAs now nursing their wounds from two consecutive election defeats thanks to an invigorated United Conservative movement in Alberta, raising taxes is once again a four-letter word in Wild Rose Country. Members of the Alberta NDP certainly haven't been afraid to raise the temperature against their federal party. Leadership contestants have even expressed an interest in opening the debate about formally dislodging the party's connection from the federal NDP, a former sacred cow within the party. Alberta NDP energy critic Nguyen Algunay released a statement last week alongside her NDP counterpart in Saskatchewan taking a shot at federal NDP MP Charlie Angus's bill that threatens imprisonment for anyone who advertises the positive contributions of Canada's oil and natural gas sector A. 
policy move from Angus that no doubt has significant support among the environmental activist wing of the party, but is clearly a non-starter for any serious Albertan politician. And unless former Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi, whose entry into the race has been much speculated, goes from purple to deep orange in his policy prescriptions and decides to radically shift his brand, it seems like Alberta NDP members will have no candidate to proudly wave the flag of its more traditional economically left-wing activist roots. Sure, the traditional NDP base can expect leadership contestants to dip into the well of increasing spending on public health care, agitating for housing affordability, and going all-in on culture wars to invigorate their base and bring excitement to the campaign. But on economic policy, tax hikes are out and tax cuts are in. Carbon taxes are a no-go. And needless to say, there will be no red carpets for federal NDP members who come through the province. This represents perhaps the most significant development in the continued fracturing of the coalition between the federal NDP and its provincial partners. Voters in both Alberta and Saskatchewan have sent a consistent message that they want their provincial NDP representatives to be sensible on economic issues that can unite blue-collar and white-collar interests. It appears this is a concession Alberta NDP members are willing to make if it gives them a shot at getting back into power. And while some may suggest this is nothing more than natural maturation in a party as it aims to return to power, it is undoubtedly a win for members of Alberta's conservative movement. Its primary opposition has conceded the field of battle on economic policy and acknowledged that national parties on the left side of the spectrum have lost the ability to communicate with the country's largest economic engine on a per capita basis. Most importantly for Premier Smith, she now has free reign to move ahead with an economic and national platform that will have little resistance in her own legislature. A gift any Premier would be jealous of. That was Evan Menzies appearing in today's Hub. He is a senior campaign strategist with Crestview Strategy. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to the Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granovsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.